Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. This episode of Pardes from Jerusalem features Rav Mike Foyer on Parashat Ki Tisak. Did you know that Pardes from Jerusalem is featured on Spotify? Follow us there for the weekly Parsha podcast or visit elmod.pardes.org. And now, here is Rav Mike Foyer. Ki Tisa and Parshat Para, a tale of two cows. Shabbat Shalom, Shabbat Shalom, everyone. I'm so excited to talk about a story of two cows. And before we can tackle that, just a word on why we're speaking about them together. This week's Parsha is not only Kitisa in the weekly reading on the annual cycle, but it's also one of the Arba Parshiot, one of the four portions which we use to prepare in our approach to Pesach, something that we're going to touch on a little bit more later. And in that order, we're reading Parshat Para, the section of the red heifer. And, though, and thus we have, in our Parsha this week, a golden calf and a red cow, right? But my teachers always taught me that you can't really speak about how two things relate until you at least somewhat understand them individually. So that's going to be our opening task. And I have to say from the outset, it's a bit futile to think that we're going to grasp depth of the golden calf or the red heifer in a 15-minute podcast, much less compare them. But we'll touch a few things along the way. The real angle I'm interested in right now is the angle of relationship, how each of these beasts and what they represent in the narrative can teach us quite a bit about relationships between one another and, of course, with God. And if I had to characterize what the golden calf has to teach us about relationship, it's the breakdown that can actually deepen intimacy. What do I mean? Well, if you take a look in the flow of the Parshiot, it seems that Parsha Truma and Tetzave come before Kitisa, which means that, again, in the flow of the chronology, that the commandment to build the tabernacle, that place in which the Lord will dwell, in which we can, of course, seek God's presence, comes before the breakdown of the calf. But Rashi, classic biblical commentator without whom we'd really be lost in the text, seems to say otherwise. On Shemot 31.18, you can see it on the source sheet there, he says the Mishka was actually commanded after the calf and asserts, Ein muktam There is no before and after. Right? We're not bound by the presentation of the Torah to assume that's how it actually happened in a chronological fashion. The other way to say that is that what drives the Torah's interest is what drives the interest of every storyteller. Your understanding, not a, pan- a pedantic attachment to factual presentation. He says, That actually the incident of the golden calf happened a significant time before the Mishwan was commanded. And I put that Rashi into the uh, source sheet there. It's worth looking at because he lays out a fantastic chronology, which if I'm not mistaken, a few years ago I spoke about in this very podcast, in which he attaches the breakdown and reuniting after the golden calf, and of course the breaking of the first tablets and the giving of the second, with the reunion of Am Yisrael and God on Yom Kippur. But I don't want to go too deep into Rashi right now. You can take a look at it. That's a little bit of extracurricular, extra credit work. For now, just know that according to Rashi, the Mishkan is a response to the breakdown of the calf. And it's not the only response that we see. If we look even just in the shot, we and we take a quick look at the interaction between Moshe and God that comes in the wake of the golden calf. And here, you'd want to look at 
chapter Shmot, um, chapter 33 in Shmot in Exodus and really look at the whole chapter. But to me, the core happens in lines 18 through 20. After Moshe realizes he's gone up the mountain, as Rashi lays out in that long comment there, he goes up the mountain thinking, I'm going to have to pick up the pieces. Literally, things are broken. Just imagine it. As the sages say, it was Kala Shizinta Mitacha Chupata. It was like the bride that runs off with the best man right after the wedding. And we just heard at Sinai, you shall have no other gods before me and don't make graven images. And here we are dancing around a golden statue only 40 days later. So Moshe goes, and it seems clear that his hope was to be able to pick up the pieces. We've all had this experience of breakdown in relationship. I mean real breakdown, not petty fights over somebody who doesn't crush the cereal boxes when they throw them away. I'm talking about fundamental problems that really expose a sense of instability within the relationship itself. And we could fear that the intimacy which preceded that breakdown may never return. But what Moshe discovers is not only is it possible to go back to that intimate relationship? On some level, the process of breakdown and rebuilding offers an intimacy which wasn't there before. As it says in the verse, when Moshe realizes that God hasn't just forgiven, but has opened up a new horizon of relationship, he says, let me see your glory. He's completely consumed by the potential for a new relationship which has grown out of the failure of the calf. And God promises to show Moshe all of his goodness, but then warns him, of course, right? Adam, lo yirani, lo yirani hadam v'chai, that human beings can't see me and live, that there is indeed a boundary. But that teaches us that Moshe was so excited by this act of forgiveness, by this reestablishment of relationship, not in spite of what was done with the calf, but in wake of it, that something had clearly been exposed in that breakdown. There was a need that wasn't being met, that God now offered Am Yisrael a way in which they could experience it in the Mishkan. Now, in order to explain that, we just have to take a simple look at some of the optics of this situation. Following in the footsteps of Rashi, and it is important to note, of course, that Rashi's great opponent in this is the Ramban, who insists that there is indeed chronological integrity to the Torah. We're not going to go into the Ramban now, but, you know, you can't ignore the fact that there's another side to the story. But for now, it may strike you as odd that the very response to the golden calf was a mishkan at the heart of which was two golden statues. I mean, we call them cherubs, and we focus on the fact that they're there to cover the ark, and there's beautiful, mystical, fantastic Torahs that we could talk about some other time. But bottom line, we're talking about the failure around golden calf replaced by golden cherubs. And in order to understand why that might be, I want to look at how Rabbi Yehuda HaLevi, great Spanish-Jewish sage of the 11th century, whose major philosophical work was Sefer Kuzari, the, the book of the Kuzari, I want to look at how he understands what really happened there at Sinai. Because in the eyes of Rabbi Yehuda HaLevi, the golden calf wasn't really a sin in the sense of an act of rebellion, but was rather the expression of a real need which was poorly handled. He says that in the wake of Moshe's disappearance and the people's excitement after Sinai, they, some, they, they were afraid. And they quote, some decided to do like the other nations and seek an object in which they could have faith, without, however, prejudicing the supremacy of him who had brought them out of Egypt. On the contrary, he says, this was to be something to which they could point when relating to the wonders of God. 
It's a long piece, but he goes on later and he says, We do the same with the sky and every other object concerning which we know that it's set in motion by the divine will exclusively. Anyone who's ever sought God in nature, or frankly has paid attention while you're singing the psalms of praise in Pesuchet Zirma, right? Halu give thanks, O you stars of heaven, knows that there's some truth to what he's saying. That not every focus on an object is to the exclusion of God. Sometimes it allows the very difficult, abstract nature of God to come into very real focus. And if that's true for us in the 21st century, when we live in a world of such intense abstractions that I can pick up a little plastic and metal box out of my pocket and start speaking into it, and if my class asks me who I'm talking to, I can say my brother in China, and they know where China is. They don't think my brother's inside the box. It all makes sense. That would not fly in the ancient world. This is a world where objects were most of what we knew of reality. And so Rabbi Yehuda Levi is recognizing on one hand that Israel had just been commanded not to make an object God, never to make a graven image. But on some level, that's a technical point not to be mistaken. The issue isn't making an object of worship. The issue isn't thinking that we can worship that object of our own choosing. The failure was not understanding the limitations in our relationship with God. God had forbidden images, and in spite of this, they made one. And he says they should have waited and not assumed power, have arranged a place of worship, altar, sacrifice, etc. This had been done, sorry, this had been done, he says, by the advice of the astrologers and magicians amongst them, who are of opinion that their actions based on their ideas would be more correct than the true ones. So you put the two together, what we find is that the calf in the eyes of Rabbi Yehuda Levi is expressive of a need for an object of worship. And in and of that, in and of, in, in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with that, as we see, as he goes on and explains, the fact that God then commands us to make two golden cherubs. What's the difference between the cherubs and the calf? It's very simple. God said to do one and not to do the other. And he goes further in explaining that the calf, the real sin or failure, is it, how it's expressive of that emblematic sort of quintessential human failing of thinking that we know better. Now, frankly, I could say Dayenu at this point and say we learn a little bit from the calf that breakdown leads to greater intimacy. And we also see that the need for the physical as a focus is not only not to be denied, but is legitimate. And, of course, the warning that never think you really know what your beloved wants. But that's only one cow in our tail. What about that heifer? So like I said, Parshat Para is a key element of preparation for Pesach. It's one of the Arba Parshiot, these four Parshiot that really connect from the beginning of Adar all the way through to the lead up to this holy holiday. And when the temple stood in physical space and our divine service happened in that physical space, and the Regalim were all about Aliyat HaRegal, actually physically going up to Jerusalem, the process of purification, not surprisingly, depended on the physical ashes of this as we'll explain momentarily. But now, in our day, our focus on divine service lies in the realm of time. Whatever you may think about the rebuilding of the temple, let it be soon, let it be now, we're stuck in time for the time being. And it is the timely revisiting of text 
which we use, which we look to for this type of preparation. And that's why this week, along with Parshat Kitisa, we're going to be reading a good chunk of Bamidbar chapter 19 as the Maftir, as the additional Torah reading. And oh my goodness, it's a doozy. I mean, all I need to do is open up the first line and you'll understand what I mean. Right? This is the statute which God commanded saying, speak to the Israelite people. Take a red heifer to me, right? Without blemish, a share ain bamum that has no defect, a share lo ala ala ol, which has never borne the yoke. And it goes on and explains this incredible process of slaughtering the cow, burning together with cedar wood, hyssop, and crimson dye, and taking its ashes to use to mix with water and sprinkle on those who've been infected with the impurity of the dead. Now, first things first. If we were going to learn Parshat Chukat on its own, we would recognize that the red heifer, the Paraduma, is the keystone of the entire structure of Tahara. This notion of ritual purity, which is required in order to enter into the intimate space of divine service. You can't go into the Mishkan if you're not pure. And by the way, this also might be enough for us to learn from Parshat Para to understand that somehow purity is the gateway to intimacy. And whatever you think that purity may be, purity of intention, purity of action, purity of body and soul, if you're looking to be intimate with God, with one another, or even with yourself, it's worthy of some consideration. But when we look at this Parsha, you might get the sense that somehow we've gone off the rails. I mean, up till now, there have been things in the Torah which were hard to absorb, but somehow... Death has a spiritual infection, and it's catching. Because if I touch it, if you touch me, and we touch this, and the wood, and the stone, etc. And there's an elaborate ritual of burning a red cow together with cedarwood hyssop and crimson dye that will cure me. Even in the COVID era, where we're all indulging in some downright ritualistic behaviors in the hopes of not getting infected, this sounds more than a little bit strange. And you would be forgiven for thinking so. Because no one less than the Rambam, the Holy Maimonides, said the same thing at the end of Hilchot Mikvaot, the Laws of Ritual Immersion, Chapter 11, Law 12. And as an aside, it's important to know that the Rambam, in his work Mishnah Torah, his great halachic work, ended every one of the 14 sections with a um, you know, halachic klali, like an all an embracing what I would call philosophical or conceptual approach. And here he says, Davar baruv galui. It's clear and evident that this whole idea of purity and impurity, it's simply a decree. They're biblical decrees. And they simply are not amongst the things which the human mind can grasp, or really more properly speaking, can, de- can determine. They're part of these chukim, these divine statues. Not statues, sorry, statutes. Statues was the earlier calf. Now, what is he referring to? In a nutshell, many great minds of Jewish history and philosophy have divided the laws of the Torah into two fundamental categories. Mishpatim, the judgments are laws which basically, even if God hadn't commanded us, we would have figured them out on our own, right? Don't kill, don't steal, respect each other, etc. Those things, you just need to have a, a society, whether you believe they're divinely mandated or not. And then there are others that 
no matter how hard you tried, you probably wouldn't have come up with it. For instance, would it have ever occurred to you that it's wrong to mix linen and wool in your clothing? Or, in our case, that in order to get rid of the infection of the dead, which you didn't know you had, that you had to burn a red cow, some wood, herbs, and dye together? Probably not. And that's why, as opposed to the mishpatim, which we would have known even if we weren't commanded, the hokim are the things which you never would have come to on your own. And what's the beauty there is that the word chok is related to the word chakak. Chakak is to engrave. And remember, engraving, as opposed to writing, is a way in which we deliver information by removing material as opposed to adding it. I write on a sheet of paper, I'm adding one thing to another and I can give it to you. I engrave out of stone, I remove something. And through that removal, you can learn. And what's being removed by the hok is the sense that the human mind is actually the arbiter by which we can judge the extent of meaning in the universe. Or more simply said, there are things we simply can't know. And by accepting that we can't know them, we can actually come to know the world in very different ways. Now, beyond the general principle, the heifer, as we said, is this hook that restores our ability to enter into the mishkan, into the divine space. And I could abstract it slightly in our, in our goal of learning something about relationship and saying that it's the mystery which restores intimacy. Because the second you think you know your beloved, You've created an object which you can possess. You've got a golden calf rather than a subject with whom you can relate, right? There's no place of divine meeting there. Now, what connects these two? Well, if you look actually in the Tanhuma, in Parsha Chukat 8, and remember, all these citations are there in the source sheet, it says, says, Rabbi Yavahu said, it's comparable when talking about the, the calf, comparable to the son of a shifcha, of a, of a maidservant, who defiled a king's palace. The king said, let his mother come and clean up the excrement. And helpfully he explains, similarly, the HaKadosh Baruch the Holy One, blessed be he, said, let the heifer come and atone for the incident of the golden calf. That somehow these two cows aren't just related because we put them together in our cycle of annual readings, but they share an essential connection. And what I would say that that essential connection is by putting them together, we understand the need for an object, for a physical focus and point of connection, but we also appreciate the fact that that somehow that object has to come without objectification. You know, there's no question, at least in my eyes, that the physical is a critical point of connection. Now, w- what it adds can be difficult to define, but nonetheless, everyone who's ever experienced physical chemistry, and I'm not talking now about what I learned in geology, but rather what it's like to actually be next to someone about whom you care, then you know that what I'm saying is true. I just had the great privilege of going back to teach at Pardes in person. Woohoo! And anybody out there who's listening amongst either my students or the other Pardes students, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I have. Um, And, you know, you would think on some level that there's really no essential difference. I mean, Torah is conceptual, right? It's all about the depth of the content. We're looking at texts together. Zoom should be the ideal medium in which we could explore it. But the experience in the classroom belies that. Because for all Zoom's convenience and the blessings of accessibility that it offers, there's nothing like learning Torah together. 
And I want to say that the Mishkan functioned in the same way. Sinai was certainly the highest of the high in terms of Torah. It was a revelation whose content we're still pouring over and digging into today, but it was also an experience. The greatest sound and light show which humanity had yet to see. And so the Mishkan is the place where we can delve into that experience just as we delve into its content through the Torah. But the calf showed us just how dangerous that can be. How quickly the attraction of the object can overwhelm our appreciation of the depth of the relationship that it's meant to represent. And that might be why, at the end of that halacha I referenced earlier, the Rambam says, despite the fact that these questions of Tuma and Tahara, of which the red heifer is the keystone, are incomprehensible, he says there is an ethical illusion within it. Just as one who sets their mind on becoming clean becomes clean as soon as they've immersed themselves, right? even though nothing new has actually been produced in their physical being, so too one who sets their mind on purifying themselves from all spiritual defilements becomes clean as soon as they made up their mind to abstain from these notions, and he's brought his soul into what he calls meidat tahor, the waters of pure consciousness, that the combination of the two, of the physical immersion, the physical act, and yes, not the physical calf, but at least the physical golden cherubim that we still picture and perhaps one day we'll see again, together with the intent that those are not an end of themselves, but are rather a focus for our desire of deep relationship, together what they offer is the mystery of intimacy, which also is experienced through a physical presence. And so the heifer comes, and by honoring our need for that physical connection, but purifying our hearts in relationship to him, cleans up the mess of the golden calf. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you again for downloading this podcast, a production of the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcast today. You can also subscribe to any of our other podcast channels by visiting us on Spotify or online at elmod.pardes.org. Tune in next week to listen to Rabbi Michael Hatton as he discusses Parashat Vayakhel Pekudeh. Thanks for listening.